Do you believe everything you see on TV? In an era of, if it isn't on film, it didn't happen, and people peddling images of themselves run through filters and retouch to create the exact version of themselves they want us to see, is it so hard to imagine that an important world event might just have been a Hollywood creation? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who doesn't blindly trust their government, but is also not sniffing around every corner for evidence that my government is lying to me. This week, buckle in as we head to the outer reaches of the unknown and try to decide once and for all if we breached stellar limits or only ethical ones. Let's talk about the moon landing and the theories that question whether it happened at all. In the 1950s and 60s, the United States and the USSR, most known from the Beatles' lesser hit back in the USSR, that's a joke, were locked in a Cold War that started mere seconds after World War II ended. Basically, we were like, we won! We defeated one of the most evil regimes ever known to man! Good job, us! Hey, wait a minute, I don't like the cut of your mustache there, Joe Stalin. And Russia was like, get a haircut, you damned hippie! And a war of words and ideals and economics was waged between East and West, and everyone was terrified of everyone else, and all the world leaders had their fingers on the nuclear bomb triggers, and it was pretty awful, despite there never being a single shot officially fired. Here in the U.S., the company line was that we were scared of the spread of communism because capitalism is our unofficial state religion. And then, in 1957, Russia launched Sputnik, the first artificial satellite to orbit the Earth. And the implications were that A, now they could spy on us from the sky and there was nowhere to hide, and B, first a satellite, next an orbiting rocket launcher. Plus, if Russia got to the moon, of course it could set up a whole moon base, and that could, potentially, be the end of the free world as we patriots know it. It's important to remember that this was an incredible moment in global and interstellar history. Now, there are seemingly countless satellites littering our skies, but before Sputnik, there were none. That kind of thing was the stuff of science fiction. Sputnik changed the course of history. So, it was with all that on his mind that on September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech on the campus of Rice University in Houston, Texas, promising to make a mission to the moon and the American dominance of space a top priority of his presidency. Kennedy announced the U.S. would put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Not to colonize space, of course, but just to make sure shit didn't get out of hand up there. Over the next seven years, the folks at NASA feverishly worked to make good on Kennedy's promise. It was, to put it mildly, not easy and pretty damn dangerous. Three men famously died in Apollo 1 when the rocket blew up on launch. And despite, or perhaps because of their deaths, a cult of personality grew around the program and especially around astronauts, the rock stars of space. Being a spaceman was the coolest. It was dangerous, it was sexy, and most of all, it was patriotic. Not only were astronauts a few steps up the coolness ladder from, say, commercial pilots, arguably the coolest people up until that point, 
They were saving humanity from the threat of nuclear disaster. And then, on July 20th, 1969, less than seven years after Kennedy promised to put a man on the moon, the whole world turned on their TV sets and witnessed Neil Armstrong and Ed Buzz Aldrin from NASA's Apollo 11 mission land on the moon. More than 650 million people, in fact, watched live as a camera mounted to the side of the lunar module captured Neil Armstrong climbing off the ladder onto the surface of the moon and heard as he uttered the famous line, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That moment effectively put an end to the so-called space race. The United States was the confirmed winner, and the world could breathe a little easier knowing that nuclear weapons wouldn't be on the moon anytime soon. Though this layperson wonders why us landing on the moon would prevent any other country from sending nukes into space, but what do I know? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is very, very little. Anyway. The moon landing was a global communal event, something that brought everyone together. It was a pre-internet viral sensation. Years later, Neil Armstrong said that wherever he went afterward, whatever foreign country he visited, the sentiment was always the same. We did this. Humanity together. Not Americans. Humans. But, as with any unifying event, the effects didn't last very long. Because, with all those eyes on Armstrong and company, a small but loud group of people started coming forward in the years following the moon landing and were like, uh, I don't know about this. Something doesn't add up. Because of course they were. We humans are a skeptical bunch, especially when it comes to matters of math and science. If we don't understand how or why something works, we decide that it can't work. Some people could not accept that not only did Apollo 11 land people on the moon, but that the subsequent five manned missions happened either. And one man pushed much of this suspicion. In 1976, while the majority of Americans were celebrating our bicentennial with the added bonus of being the first people on the surface of the moon, along came former U.S. Navy midshipman, former technical writer for Rocketdyne, the company hired by NASA to build the rockets that would ferry us to the moon, and author William Bill Casing to put a big ol' wah-wah over the whole affair. Casing self-published a book called We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 Billion Swindle, which, as its incredibly straightforward title suggested, laid out the case that the televised moon landing was a giant hoax, as were all five of the missions after 11. Casing's claims were, on their surface, pretty convincing. His arguments seemed pretty solid. For starters, Casing argued the lunar module didn't create a crater on the moon's surface where it landed. The jet supposedly contained a 10,000-pound thrust hyperbolic engine. How could a force that strong, Casing asked, not cause more disruption of the ground? Then there was the telltale lack of stars in the photos and footage from the moon. With no atmosphere to obscure them, why wouldn't they be visible? And, speaking of photos, the lighting and shadows, Casing said, were all wrong. 
Everyone knows that a natural light source, like, say, the sun, casts shadows and can't possibly light surfaces blocked from it, like the backs of people. How could it be that objects in deep shadow were visible? Why were the astronauts' backs as bright as their fronts? Why were they seemingly lit from behind in some shots, but not in silhouette? But, I hear you cry, what about the launch? What about the hundreds of people who watched the Apollo 11 rocket take off from Cape Canaveral? If the whole thing was a hoax, what did they watch? The rocket took off from Cape Canaveral, Casing argued, but that doesn't mean it landed on the moon. In fact, he claimed it landed, as planned, in the South Polar Sea, where the three men were retrieved and secretly brought to Nevada in a high-altitude jet where, in Casing's own words, The three astronauts are comfortably seated in their subterranean module mock-up surrounded by top ASP directors. Within this fantastic and well-equipped building is ever-conceivable luxury, including a few of the shapeliest showgirls from Las Vegas, cleared for secret, of course. This building was the Mercury Apollo Simulation Project, or ASP, base, which, as far as I understand, Casing claims was built to look and feel like an actual casino, complete, it seems, with slot machines and a restaurant... Other than an occasional check with Mission Control in Houston, the astronauts are free to wander about and play the slots, sample the 24-hour buffet from the dunes, and watch color TV broadcasts from a private Telstar satellite. And this is super confusing, because now it sounds like he's saying they were also at the dunes hotel. Incidentally, years later, rumors circulated that Armstrong had been seen at this time casually walking through a casino with, quote, a showgirl on each arm. And that Aldrin was playing the slots, which makes zero sense if they were supposed to be hiding out as part of this super secret elaborate mission. But whatever. And then Casing added this fun anecdote. Note, it has been alleged that one of the astronauts socked an ASP official in a dispute over a showgirl named Peachy Keen, but this has not been authenticated by our source of information. Just that hasn't been authenticated? Just that? And then, when the moment came for the Apollo 11 lunar module to land on the moon... The three men sauntered over to a set that had been designed and built to look like the moon's surface inside the ASP base, and, with a seven-second delay, they aired the simulation of the moon landing on television worldwide. And while the majority of Americans bought the act hook, line, and sinker, Casing claimed that as many as 100 million Americans had their doubts. His evidence? He claimed nearly half the people who called into radio and TV shows he appeared on called to voice their support of his claims. Not the most scientific evidence. More rigorous polls have shown the number closer to 19 million Americans. Not surprisingly, a majority of Russians polled believe the moon landing was faked. And of course they do. No one likes coming in second. And after a whole moon landing, Sputnik seemed like small potatoes. And Lord knows you can't make good vodka from small potatoes. I'm allowed to make that joke because my grandfather was from Ukraine. 
The space race was indeed what primarily motivated the U.S. to land on the moon. Dominating the skies and or keeping the celestial peace became the American mission. So, Bill Casing argued, the powers that were had every reason to stage the whole thing. Especially, he thought, because once Apollo 1 blew up, tragically killing the three men on board, rather than admitting defeat or, you know, continuing their efforts, NASA was secretly like, Ugh, this is impossible! We're never gonna succeed! Fuck it. Let's just fake it, like all our wives do! That's not fair. I know not all the people at NASA were men. In an interview for Wired magazine in 1994, Casing said... They, both NASA and Rocketdyne, wanted the money to keep pouring in. I've worked in aerospace long enough to know that's their goal. And with a purported price tag of nearly $30 billion, this was one serious case of it takes money to make money. $28 billion was apparently a small price to pay to fulfill President Kennedy's promise and keep up Americans' interest in the space program. But, I would think, more than keeping the tax dollars rolling in, an even bigger incentive would be to end the Cold War and stop the threat of actual nuclear warfare. If swindling the world into believing we landed on the moon literally helped prevent that, I have to say, I'm kind of all for it. Fake away, my good friends. So, 19 million Americans believe we never landed on the moon. It's not 100 million, sure, but 19 million is nothing to sneeze at. To be fair, the U.S. government wasn't exactly a shining example of honesty around this time. By the time Casing published his book in 1976, the U.S. had been rocked by a few scandals that served to wear away trust in the government. Between the Watergate scandal, reports about government-led tests on mind control, and revelations that we had been outright lied to about the reasons for entering into the war in Vietnam, a lot of Americans were, understandably like, not to fucking day Bob. So, when Casing came out with claims that we had been lied to by our own government about the moon landing, a lot of Americans were primed to believe it. The conspiracy theory that we never landed on the moon chugged quietly along for a couple of decades. Casing's body of proof was growing as he consulted with more people who were in his camp of disbelievers. All the while, the conspiracy theory gained momentum, helped in part by a few fictional movies that fanned the flames with either blatant or casual references to the possibility of a moon landing hoax. You know what's a lot worse than fictional characters making offhanded comments? A so-called news channel running a special laying out an entire case for the conspiracy theory. In 2001, Fox News aired a documentary called Did We Land on the Moon? As a cover-your-ass, they ran a brief disclaimer at the beginning that said the theories expressed in the program were about a controversial subject and were not the only interpretation, inviting viewers to make their own judgments based on all available information, which A, should go without saying about everything, and B, as we know by now, people tend to remember the very last thing they see, not the disclaimer way back in the beginning warning them to maybe possibly sort of kind of not blindly believe it. The program included an interview with Bill Casing, who had clearly spent the previous 25 years gathering up more so-called evidence. 
There were a lot of claims made in the Fox special, so I'm just going to highlight a few. Casing added to his doctored photo theory. Over the years, he and other co-conspirators had noticed that the crosshairs placed on the lens of the camera on the moon somehow appeared behind objects in the photos. If the crosshairs were on the lens itself, how could anything be in front of them? Adding to his earlier argument that there was no crater formed underneath the lunar module despite the thousands of pounds of thrust it took to land it, Casing now pointed to more facts about the dust around the module that he said proved his point. One was that there were footprints left at the base of the ladder practically underneath the module itself, and how could that be if all the dust got displaced on landing? Furthermore, he asked, why did the dust that was displaced never settle back down onto the feet of the module? In subsequent photos of the module, the feet remain clean as ever. And, as we all know, dust has a tendency to settle back down. It doesn't just go poof and disappear. Side note, my ex-husband once told me the house he grew up in never got dusty. Like it was in some kind of magic bubble. Apparently, it never occurred to him that his mother spent all her time cleaning up after him and his dad and three siblings. Anyway... Casing and his cohort also ask how the American flag is waving when there's no wind on the moon. And to be clear, I think the word moving is more appropriate than waving. The flag is seen moving while the men are trying to secure it into the ground. It's not flapping about willy-nilly on its own. Also, it apparently had rods in it to keep it stiff, and the bottom rod didn't extend all the way, so the whole thing was wonky. Or that's what they want us to believe. Incidentally, I believe it. The Fox special and casing made very scary and official-sounding proclamations that anyone passing through the van radiation belt that exists in some spots between the Earth and the moon would suffer from deadly radiation poisoning. Even if they somehow managed to pass through the belt without being poisoned, the radiation from the sun would surely have poisoned them once they were on the moon, where there was no protective atmosphere. This segment was accompanied by disturbing footage of people with radiation poisoning. Not people involved in the Apollo program, just people struggling with and dying from horrific radiation sickness. One of the most incendiary things about the special was the implication that NASA had people killed who they thought might threaten to expose the fraud. One of them, Gus Grissom, allegedly said at some point, someone is going to get killed, which is, not for nothing, a pretty common sense prediction about an unprecedented and extremely complicated and dangerous undertaking such as going to the moon. He was one of the three men who tragically died during the failed Apollo 1 mission. And then there was NASA safety inspector Thomas Barron, who just days after testifying in Congress about the Apollo 1 accident, was struck by a train in his car, killing him, his wife, and his stepdaughter. Of course, anyone who's ever seen a single episode of The Sopranos knows you're supposed to kill someone before they testify. Waiting until after kind of defeats the purpose, no? There's also footage of Neil Armstrong testing a module similar to the one they would end up using on the mission. 
The module crashed into a spectacular fireball mere seconds after Armstrong ejected. Casing points to this accident and asks how it could be possible that they improved the module enough so that this didn't happen on the moon. And I'm sorry, but the answer to that is they learned from their mistakes and built better machines, which is exactly why they performed the test. That's how trial and error works, especially with extremely complicated, never-before-attempted things like landing on a celestial body. Come on. And now, allow me to counterpoint Casing's claims. And to be clear, I'm not just making this stuff up. It all comes from actual science-backed sources. The reason the module didn't form a crater when it landed was because the main thrusting happened too far above the ground to have an impact on the ground below it. The module landed rather gently, not really displacing much dust at all, which not only accounts for the footprints right next to it, but also in part for why dust never settled back down onto the feet of the module. I say in part because that also has to do with pretty boring facts about gravity and electrostatic. In short, moon dust doesn't behave like earth dust. Maybe that's why my ex-husband's childhood home never got dusty. It was the only house on earth with moon dust. As for the supposed weird lighting, I asked a super fancy award-winning photographer if he could help me understand it. And he said that the moon would be a photographer's dream studio because the surface of the moon acts like a giant reflector that helps scatter light. Anyone who's ever had a headshot or fancy portrait taken is familiar with those foldable reflectors photographers use to bounce light. The moon is basically that on a massive scale. The reason there are no stars in the background is the same reason you wouldn't see stars in a photo taken on Earth during the day. They were on the daylight side of the moon. If you overexpose the images and basically blow out all the stuff on the moon itself, you can see the stars. The crosshairs in the photos, NASA explained, become more faint the more bright the object being photographed is. Plus, every time the photo is copied or scanned, details get lost, making it look like objects are in front of rather than behind them. As for the radiation, I checked in with a buddy who works at NASA, and he reached out to his NASA co-workers on a work chat board. According to them, the articles they attached, as well as a very dry document called SP-368, Biomedical Results of Apollo, Chapter 3, Radiation Protection and Instrumentation, by J. Vernon Bailey for the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center, in a nutshell, because again, super science-y, the amount of time spent within the van radiation belt would not have been enough to cause serious damage. The radiation exposure on the moon itself would have also been lower than levels that caused damage. The astronauts were, however, lucky that there wasn't any solar flare activity when they were on the moon. That could have proved disastrous. According to one source, all the men involved in the flights to the moon were warned about the possibility of infertility. But it wasn't going to be like being exposed to radium in large quantities or being in a nuclear waste facility that blows up. Plus, let's not forget that radiation is literally used to cure cancer. So we know for a fact that the human body can withstand some exposure to radiation without immediately melting. Now, I have saved Casing's weirdest claim for last. 
that the man hired to pull off the great TV show that was the faked moon landing was none other than Stanley Kubrick of 2001 A Space Odyssey fame. Think about it. It makes perfect sense, according to casing anyway. First off, filming on 2001 started at the same time that details on the Apollo 11 project were being finalized. The movie took two and a half years to make and started out with a $6 million budget, which ballooned to over $10 million. Side note, movies go over budget nearly 100% of the time. That's not any indication of nefarious government activity. It's just poor budget planning. Also, it's easier to get $6 million up front and then be like, oops, looks like I need more once you're already knee-deep into production. Casing alleged that Kubrick consulted nearly 70 different authorities to ensure the film would be technically accurate, which, he says, if the Apollo space project had done that on its own without the cover of a Hollywood film, would have raised suspicions. And lastly, 2001 came out in 1968, the idea being that it primed people for the moon landing footage to come in the following year. With all the special effects shots of people in space, a simple walk on the moon would look like nothing. In short, Kubrick made 2001 in order to pull the wool over the world's eyes when it came to his true masterpiece, 1969, The Moon Landing. Incidentally, I hate 2001 A Space Odyssey. Frankly, I think it's one giant snooze fest. But why would Kubrick have done this? Well, according to journalist Rich Cohen of the Paris Review, it was either a deep, abiding love of country, a good old-fashioned desire for lots of cash, or to protect his younger brother, who the government threatened to expose as a communist if Kubrick didn't play nice. So, many reasons. And why did Kubrick never come forward and confess? Well... According to filmmaker Jay Widener, Kubrick did make a giant, if veiled, confession in another one of his movies I absolutely cannot stand, the 1980 hit The Shining, based on the novel by Stephen King, who also, incidentally, hated the movie. Widener's theory is, if you ask me, a perfect example of confirmation bias. If you want to find hidden messages, they're everywhere. Literally anything can be a hidden message. Widener's examples are many, and I don't have time to go over all of them, but basically, the hotel is a metaphor for the mid-century United States, a once beautiful but now crumbling vestige of the past. We first see it shrouded in winter, like a Cold War, if you will. The main character, Jack's mind, is deteriorating like, perhaps, the mind of a person harboring a lie. When Jack's wife finds the pages Jack has been spending hours writing, what she finds are the words, All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. All work, Widener asks. All? As in A for Apollo and LL like the number 11? Jack's son Danny wears a sweater with a picture of the Apollo 11 rocket on it, which, when he stands, I guess looks like it's blasting off? But of course it isn't, because it's fake, just like the moon landing was. Get it? He goes to room 237, which was changed from the book, because the moon is 237,000 miles away. Do you see it now? 
Never mind that the moon is closer to 239,000 miles away, and couldn't he have just as easily made the room 239? Anywho, the idea is that Danny is Kubrick, answering the call of the U.S. government to travel all the way to room 237, the moon, though not really. Perhaps Rolling Stone magazine writer E.J. Dixon put it best when he said, quote, All we can really say is that if Kubrick did indeed have the technical skill to fake the moon landing, then Eyes Wide Shut should have been infinitely less boring, end quote. And honestly, I couldn't have said it better myself. And that leads me to this point. If the moon landing really was filmed by Kubrick in a hangar somewhere near Vegas, why were there so many mistakes? If all the things Casing claims should have been there, like a crater or stars or different lighting or an immovable flag, are proof that it was a hoax, and Kubrick supposedly consulted dozens upon dozens of experts, then Kubrick did a terrible job. One or two mistakes I can buy, but with such a huge budget, wouldn't he have thought to add stars if stars were supposed to be in the shot? Or a crater? Or a flag that didn't behave the way it did when people manipulated it? 2001 A Space Odyssey, as incredibly boring as it is, was a technical masterpiece. How would Kubrick have slipped up so spectacularly on his very next venture? I get that he would have had to make it look more real than a fictional movie, but that doesn't mean getting a whole bunch of basic science facts wrong. And much more to the point, just because he worked as a technical writer at the company that made the rockets doesn't mean Casing knew anything about anything having to do with the science of lunar travel. It gives him absolutely zero authority. Call me a snob, but I'm much more inclined to believe actual scientists at NASA than a guy whose other books were How to Live in the New America, The Robin Hood Handbook, Intelligent Motorcycling, and How You Can Stop Smoking and Enjoy It. All, I should mention, self-published. Listen, I once played a barber on an episode of a TV show. That doesn't give me the authority to cut your hair in real life. There's new video technology that allows for near-identical simulations of the Apollo moon landings, which effectively debunk every claim that it was all made up. But here's the thing. Trying to debunk a conspiracy theory is like spinning your wheels in mud. The harder you try, the deeper the belief goes. You become just another pawn, a sheep, a sucker who bought into the big lie. People like to be on the inside. They like to think the veil has been lifted from their eyes and they can see what's really going on. Any attempt at showing them science is futile. But hey, I feel like I gave it a solid try. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, how did an ancient cautionary tale become a tool for genocide? Whip out your compasses and tinfoil hats, we're going to the lost city of Atlantis. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. 
Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. And our voice actor for this episode was Ryan Garcia. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>